It is about, you know, again, certainty. Um, and that's what's very important here. It's any project, doesn't matter if it's oil and gas, they want certainty. They want to know that when they go through the review process, the permitting process, that there are timelines that they're going to follow and they can keep the project on time and ready to go. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Today, we talk about a study from the National Petroleum Council, which looked at U.S. oil and gas transportation infrastructure. Kevin Book, with Clearview Energy Partners and a non-resident associate here at CSIS, participated in the year-long study. He'll give us a bit of overview, and then he's going to talk with two of the study principals, Amy Shank with Williams and Sean Bennett with the Department of Energy. But we'll get some of the study's key findings and recommendations. Here's Kevin to tell us a bit more about the study. Hello, and welcome to Energy 360. I'm Kevin Book, and I'm your host for today. I am a non-resident senior associate in the center's energy security and climate change program, although some of you probably also know me as director of research at Clearview Energy Partners. I'm here today to talk about the National Petroleum Council's dynamic delivery study, which was a comprehensive assessment of oil, gas, and liquids transportation that the council approved last December. For our conversation, I'm so very pleased to be joined by two people who are absolutely essential to the success of the study. Amy Shank is Director of Pipeline Integrity at Williams. Good morning to you, Amy. Good morning, Kevin. It's great to hear your voice. Likewise, good to see you again and hear you. And Sean Bennett is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Oil and Gas at the Department of Energy's Office of Fossil Energy. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning, Kevin. Great to see you again. Likewise. So I want to start out, before we go further, maybe by acquainting our audience with the National Petroleum Council itself, because I suspect that some of our listeners may not know it. The National Petroleum Council, or NPC, is a federally chartered, privately funded industry advisory committee to the Secretary of Energy. Its history goes back to 1946, so well before there was a Department of Energy. And for all those decades, the council has provided recommendations to the U.S. government and now to the Secretary of Energy on issues that concern the oil and gas industry. The questions that come from the secretary sometimes sound beguilingly simple, but the answers to those questions usually require enormous multidisciplinary reports that are hundreds of pages long. And the preparation of those reports, believe me, is no small effort. Studies also usually involve hundreds of people, most of whom are volunteers seconded from or working in addition to management and executive level jobs at at energy companies, at, at government agencies, NGOs academia, Wall Street, native tribes, among others. And, and they collectively spend sometimes tens of thousands of hours in dozens of teams and subgroups to pull the studies together. It's a breathtaking effort. And the final product is pretty spectacular. For, for those of you who haven't read an NPC study, and as an analyst, when I was first starting out, they were incredibly helpful. I'd recommend checking out the website at npc.org. There have been hundreds, and they are robust. But that brings me to Amy and Sean, because somebody has to coordinate the day-to-day work of writing a study like that. And Amy and Sean were co-chairs of something that's called the Coordinating Subcommittee, which was itself comprised of, of dozens of members who did just what it sounds like, coordinating the study. In full disclosure, I am a member of the council and I participated uh, in Amy and Sean's committee. But with that, let's, let's turn to our guests. Amy, why don't we start with you? Uh, tell me a little bit about your role at Williams. Okay. So I am the director of Pipeline Integrity, and um, Williams provides about 30% of the nation's natural gas. 
Um, so we have thousands, about 30,000 miles of, of pipeline, and, and that's no small feat. Um, I am responsible for the pipeline safety and the pipeline integrity function at the company. So that really means that on a day-to-day -day basis, I have a staff that is um, coordinating with our field and coordinating with regulators to um, ensure and demonstrate that we are following all of the um, applicable regulations and that we are keeping our pipeline safe through a myriad of integrity tasks and analysis. So that's really it in a nutshell. It's a, it's a big nutshell. It sounds like a big job. Uh, Sean, to you, tell me a bit about what you do at DOE. Yes, thanks, Evan. Uh, yeah, my name is Sean Bennett, Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Oil and Natural Gas. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's multifaceted. So uh, being the subject matter expert on all... Uh, all aspects of the oil and gas industry. Uh, we run a, about a $100 million R&D program out of the Department of Energy. You know, I think most recently known or largely known is really what helped kind of bring along the, the shale renaissance that we've had, or the oil and gas renaissance through shale development here in the United States. Um, but again, focusing a lot on upstream development uh, as well as midstream, uh, looking at pipelines, a uh, way to, you know, also looking at utilization of uh, flared gas and so forth, as well as methane hydrates. So, you know, kind of think about that, uh, you know, part of the oil and gas industry that's a little too Star Trek-y, but still too far out in the future for the oil and gas industry to really be focused on. You know, we focus a lot on that, as well as analysis engagement. Uh, you know, again, a lot of the oil and gas analysis, which has been, uh, pretty uh, busy here uh, since about uh, March of this year, uh, and it's taken up uh, the lion's share of my time, as well as, you know, a regulatory authority of uh, being the authorization for LNG exports uh, here in the United States. Another very big nutshell, I think. Uh, did either of you have any, any idea how big an effort the NPC study was going to be when you signed up for it? Well, you use the term signed up. I, I think I tend to use the term voluntold um, <laughs> by my CEO. Uh, actually, I had very little knowledge or exposure to the National Petroleum Council when I was asked if I would be willing to chair this effort. And uh, very quickly, I got in contact with the people at the National Petroleum Council and they, in turn, referred me to some of the past study uh, CSC chairs, and so I had some conversations with them, and as soon as they stopped laughing after I told them that I um, was taking on this task, um, I began to understand that it was a monumental task, that it was going to be uh, probably life-changing. Um, that sounds dramatic, but dedicating um, almost two years of your professional life to one specific goal is, is something that we don't really do. We, we do a lot of things that we hit quickly, get done, and then move on. So um, it was a tremendous experience, and I'm so thankful um, and appreciative of the opportunity that Alan Armstrong gave me to, to lead the CSE along with Sean. Sean, what about you? Well, um... <laughs> I, I found out that I was going to be co-chairing this probably my uh, my second month on the job when after I was appointed. But uh, I I, actually, I consulted in energy in depth was in my portfolio there, and uh, and with that I read through a lot of those studies and never did I imagine that I was going to be part of one of those studies. Um, I really gleaned a lot of information out of it. Little did I know how much work went into it. I think Amy feels the same way, and we all feel the same way. So really to kind of be thrust into that and then trying to take it all in and then figure out 
the behemoth that you have to manage and make it through. I mean, how many countless hours that we spent on it uh, and that monumental task. It really was a marathon. Uh, it, it taught me a lot, uh, not just as far as, you know, listening to other disciplines within the oil and gas sector, whether it's, you know, the marine portion, the rail portion, the NGO's stances, uh, labor, and so forth, but really kind of bringing everyone together and making everyone feel happy or at least comfortable. And that was, you know, an exercise in itself, and, and that really gave you a lot of insight on how much work goes into these NPC studies. I was used to seeing the final product, but to be there when the sausage is being made was a, a chance of a lifetime and, and, and something I'll never forget, that's for sure. Um, well, congratulations to both of you. Uh, and, you know, it is a really big effort. Uh, so maybe we should talk about some of the, the details and, and the conclusions, some some of the key insights from the study. Amy, maybe I'll ask you first. What are, what are some of the two or three of the things that, that jumped out from that great big book you prepared? Well, I think one of the key questions that was asked by Secretary Perry was um, what the future for the demand and supply of oil and natural gas looked like into a time horizon of around 2040 and whether or not uh, that projection or projections indicated a need for more infrastructure. So I think one of the, the biggest aha moments that we had was after looking at all of the supply and demand scenarios, and we looked at a lot of supply and demand scenarios, um, that even the low carbon, um, high renewable scenarios show that oil and natural gas are going to be a large part of our ability to meet our energy demands well into that time horizon. The second, um, probably most surprising thing that that came up was this recognition by this group that are really focused on oil and natural gas, recognize that there's a, this dual challenge that exists out there. And that dual challenge is providing affordable energy uh, to really help support our economic development as a country and also to provide the benefits that our citizens are accustomed to. But there's also this challenge of doing what's right for the climate. Um, and so the, the study members recognize that climate change is a serious issue and that's actually st stated in the study and that we need to be a part of the solution. And so for me, those are really the two biggest things and being a part of the solution really came to fruition in our recommendation that along with reforms to the permitting process and specifically NEPA, that Congress should enact a comprehensive carbon or climate change policy. So um, the, the words are much more carefully picked in the study, but that's the gist. And I think it's really surprising for the National Petroleum Council to, to say those things. Well, we'll come back to, to NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, more than a little bit in this conversation, I'm sure. Sean, what about you? What are some of the things that jump off the page when you look at the report? Well, I mean, so many great recommendations really came out. And, and really it was, you know, the interconnectability of all the industries that work together, uh, whether it is, 
you know, what does this look like from where we were to where we are today, and what does the future look like? And, you know, as basins change and move around, you know, the the, the supply is going to continue to move around the United States, and then demand is going to continue to move around. And, you know, that interconnectability, whether it is rail having to serve a, a short-term answer to a, a long-term issue of, of trying to find markets, uh, and then also building and permitting and building the pipelines, which are very important. Then getting into the export possibilities, um, whether it is you know crude oil or petroleum uh, products, LNG and so forth, you know the, how that all works together, and and really looking at the technology advancements that need to happen. So you know again, I, I, I would say almost selfishly, uh, representing an office focused on research and development, you know a lot of the. Um, a, a lot of the items and recommendations that came out of that technology uh, development, whether it is some of the cyber recommendations, making sure that we stay in front of some of these state actors who are trying to disrupt uh, oil and gas development here in the United States, or whether it is, you know, from my time representing the oil and gas industry in Ohio, um, there were a lot of pipelines being built and recognizing, you know, the community engagement had to be a very important part of that and making sure that there are recommendations that were tied to that. It was really just fascinating to kind of watch, and, and as you kind of see everything kind of move off the page, you know, I, I think, you know, again, we're going to touch on NEPA, but, you know, one of the great highlights uh, that, that really happened in, in government term almost immediately after, uh, you know, our, our, we released a report was a lot of those changes to NEPA that uh, was, was covered in the executive order and, and really recognizing that these are large projects, costly projects, and they need to stay on time because this is about delivering low-cost energy uh, to citizens around the country. Well, so... Sean, I guess maybe to set the stage for where we're going to go next, uh, as, as Amy mentioned, it was, it was former Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry, who made the request for the study back in, in September of 2017. Why, why did he ask for the study? Why was he asking the NBC to comment? What, what were the challenges he was thinking about back then? Well, you know, if you go back to that time, um, you know, a lot of the pipelines that were being constructed or being planned and, and permitted were getting a host of different challenges, whether it is from NGOs, whether it's for from different groups, uh, tribes for, for the Dakota Access Pipeline and so forth. So when you think about where we were uh, being an importer of natural gas, uh, being an importer of crude, to really asserting our energy security here in the United States, we have to maximize that opportunity, ensure that there are no bottlenecks. And, and, and being a former governor from Texas and seeing this happen just right in his home state and recognizing that, you know, we are in the precipice of an opportunity to supply our entire nation with domestic uh, energy resources that we had to ensure that you know the pipelines are in place are not enough and these pipelines that whether they're coming out of North Dakota and the Bakken or whether they were going through Appalachia and trying to hit new markets for natural gas you know they needed to be built and they needed to follow the rule of law and people had to feel comfortable make sure that they got built because at the end of the day you need certainty and I think you know coming from the previous administration, there was this lack of certainty. So requesting the National Petroleum Council to look at this and help provide recommendations to provide that certainty to make sure we get this infrastructure put into place and ensure that not only are meeting our energy needs currently, but we are going to continue to meet our energy needs uh, in the future, whether it is from replacing pipe that's already in the ground or building new pipelines to get to expanding markets throughout the United States as well as abroad. Well, let me turn to you on that, Amy, because, I mean, you're, you're a pipeline person and by trade. And, you know, we have a pretty vast energy transportation infrastructure. And I, I think it's already been mentioned, the energy system here in the U.S., it's greening up. At the risk of understatement, um, pipelines have been drawing a lot of opposition for years. 
And they've been in the news a lot lately, too. Just this month, on July 6th, an operating crude oil pipeline, Dakota Access, received a shutdown order from a federal judge. And, and one day before that, uh, the project sponsors of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline uh, abandoned the, the project. So, you know, the, the opponents have been going after these projects. The projects are, in some cases, getting stopped. Uh, what are the opponents missing? Why, why do we need this infrastructure if we're only already getting the energy and we're already greening up? Uh, do we do we need more pipelines, railroads and, and ports? And, and if so, why? Well, I want to make a few points here. So first of all, is that uh, supply is always going to make its way to demand. And so um, whether that's by the most efficient or the least efficient method, it's going to make it's going to make it there. So when you stop a pipeline project, you're going to drive up traffic um, on railroads and also on um, roadways, possibly marine, and depending on what commodity you're talking about, um, you could end up with uh, different bottlenecks being introduced where the supply really has difficulty getting to the demand centers and creates pricing spikes. So you may not see the impact immediately in these canceled uh, projects and these challenges. I think long-term, you're going to see them in less choice by consumers, higher prices paid by consumers, and possibly the least efficient and the least safe methods of transportation. So the second point I wanna make is that Again, history tells us some really valuable lessons in that supply and demand centers do tend to change over time. And we saw that in spades with the shale revolution and the massive buildup um, of infrastructure in uh, the Appalachia area. Uh, that simply didn't exist back before 2007, kind of 2008 timeframe. So, we're going to have to continue to be able to bend and flex our infrastructure system to be able to help those products get to where they're needed. And we've been able to be very good at that so far. I think you've seen a lot of projects or pipelines that are in the Northeast that have been turned around to take uh, natural gas, say, uh, south instead of north. So they were going from the, the Gulf Coast up to the east up the eastern seaboard and into the the main population centers in New Jersey and New York, and now those pipelines have been turned around and they're taking um, natural gas uh, the other way and supplying uh, new energy demand in power plants in say Florida. So um, we've seen our system flex and we've we've actually benefited from that without even realizing why it was happening or to what extent it was happening. But our study shows that we have maximized the system as it stands and that you're not going to be able to continue to meet demand with the system that we have. So even if our demand remained flat or even slightly declined, over time basins get depleted and new, new basins get developed and we're going to have to build new infrastructure uh, to, to move product from supply to demand. So when we, we talk about this moving target of supply moving around and demand you know, moving from time to time, uh, both of you have, have mentioned permitting 
and the, the role the National Environmental Policy Act plays. And Sean, I think and you specifically uh, mentioned some reforms. I want to come back to the, to the reforms themselves, maybe by going sequentially in order, although I realize it's very top of mind. Uh, I mean, when you, when you talk about industry recommending reforms of the National Environmental Policy Act, which uh, establishes standards across the whole of the federal government uh, for the agencies that, that write infrastructure permits, uh, it sounds just a little bit self-serving, you know, for an industry group to be recommending that. Uh, what what was the thinking? What what's the upside, for example, for consumers and the public for for changing these reg- regulations to to expedite permitting? Well, if you think about the <clears throat> modernization of NEPA, this this isn't necessarily even just specific to the oil and gas industry. This is you know applicable to to everything, and that, and that includes renewable projects because, you know, I mean, just working in energy space for. One over 20 years now, what the industry is facing, the oil and gas industry is facing today is, is still the problems that they're facing for permitting and so forth in the renewable industry, whether it's through transmission lines or through easements and, and, and so forth. So, you know, a lot of those face similarities. And, and it is about, you know, again, certainty. Um, and that's what's very important here. It's any project, and I, I, it doesn't matter if it's oil and gas or, you know, building um, manufacturing facility. They want certainty. They want to know that when they go through the review process, the permitting process, that there are timelines that they're going to follow and they can keep the project on time and ready to go and they have an idea of whether or not they're meeting the metrics and really the issue with, with, with NEPA was just that there's so much uncertainty out there that these projects that you would say cost $4 billion ultimately inflate the cost to $8 billion all through delays, legal issues and if without that certainty, you know, you're just creating, you know, just a, a panacea of litigation and, and comments and, and that's really what, you know, that modernization of NEPA really comes into play. But what that ultimately means is lower energy costs for consumers. What comes out of the ground has to get to market and any cost that is incurred from the wellhead to, you know, the end user is going to ultimately increase the cost or decrease the cost. You know, the great thing about being a wash natural gas uh, from Appalachia and, and making its way and being permitted throughout the United States, whether it's, you know, pipelines historically gone north, going south, and then, you know, moving to markets west, um, you know, I think Chicago is a great market and a great example of the cost of natural gas dropping significantly. And if you think about in the 80s, currently the price of natural gas, you know, just for inflation is the same price. Uh, and how many other commodities do you know are similar to that? And then you think about, you know, what happened in, uh, for oil. Um, you know, we historically, I mean, remember paying, you know, again, $12 in MCF, $10 in MCF for natural gas, uh, now down to, you know, $1.65. But even for oil, when we were all paying $4 a gallon, you know, the end user are ultimately the consumers. And the more we're able to get these products to the markets, you know, the better price options that they have, which why you kind of also see that disconnect between California prices for the price at the gallon at the pump versus where I'm from in Ohio. Um, and again, it, the more efficient we can get that product there, actually, the, the more we can produce because at the end of the day, it's all the costs that are built up will significantly grow or significantly uh, shrink the uh, amount of wells that we can drill because it is about economics at the end of the day. I, th- I think it's an important point you make that the NEPA does have a nexus over every infrastructure project, not just energy. And also not lost uh, was the point you made about the, the renewables projects. Uh, one of the signs of the maturation of renewables, I guess, is that they're getting challenged as well. I mean, offshore wind is, has had opposition for years, but we're getting to the point now where big solar installations 
uh, in the desert are also getting challenged on an Endangered Species Act concern and that sort of thing. So welcome to the big time, Green Energy. You're there now. Uh, Amy, anything you want to add to that? Well, I am really glad that you brought that up, that, that the NEPA reforms apply to all infrastructure projects um, under that purview, uh, especially linear projects. So when you think about, you know, substantially increasing renewables, that's going to require a lot of modifications and additions be made to our um, electricity transmission system. And you're going to run into those same exact uh, issues of not having a clear path to getting a, a permit approved, um, that the the NEPA, the way that it was designed before, said that you had to do environmental impact studies under certain scenarios, but they didn't say really what they needed to include or or how you would know when you've done enough. And I think that's what we faced uh, with our infrastructure projects here at Williams is that every project that we've done over recent years, we've done more and more and more. I think our last EIS, that's an environmental impact study, was in excess of 1,500 pages, and it still wasn't enough. And so I think that that's really important to know that it's not just oil and gas infrastructure projects that will benefit from the NEPA reforms. It, it's really every infrastructure project. And the reality is we're going to need all of them to get to where we need to go. We're going to need oil and gas. We're going to need renewables. We're going to need carbon sequestration. And you think about our sister study, which I won't go into in detail, but it talks about um, capturing carbon out of the atmosphere and um, and doing something with that, and that's going to require pipelines. So they would run into the exact same issues that we have on pipelines. Absolutely. It's a really good point also. Well, so since you've brought up pipelines and, and issues, uh, I want to ask you, Amy, sort of a delicate topic. Uh, in recent years, there have been some highly visible accidents, not just pipelines, rail and marine as well that have involved the transport of oil and natural gas. Why are, why are accidents happening? Why are they continuing to happen? And, and what is it that can, can be done to make the system safer and, and you bring up the environment and, and to reduce environmental impacts? Well, I think when you look at, at the major um, accidents that have happened, um, there's not a, a big trend of the same uh, issue creating those accidents. So as an industry, uh, we've gotten really good at learning from the accidents that have happened and incorporating those learnings into our integrity processes, our operating um, guidelines and requirements. Uh, and so what we really need and what came out of the study was a recommendation to speed the path of the development of, of new technology, which is paramount in being able to address accidents and issues and risks, um, speed those to, to market or into the hands of the people who can use them. So many of the regulations out there require a long, torturous path of approval. So we want to have more collaboration between industry uh, as well as the national labs at the DOE. We want to have more um, consortiums and joint industry and government projects to prove out uh, new technology. 
and really amplify that and, and speed uh, the speed with which we can use it to make our pipeline system safer. Uh, Amy mentioned the DOE. Sean, did you want to comment on that as well? Yeah, and, and it really kind of touches upon, you know, kind of one of the most important findings that I, I felt coming out of the study, and, and that really was um, technology and deployment, and, and that deployment is what's important. I mean, you know, whether it is, you know, uh, navigation tools for marine transfer to ensure safe passage through, you know, the, the ship channels and so forth, or pipeline integrity and inline inspection tools, you know, being able to collaborate with, uh, you know, the EPA, uh, DOT, Coast Guard, you know, really that collaboration, which is really important. And, and I think in a lot of recommendation really highlights that fact that there needs to be more collaboration between the federal agencies. But, you know, in regard to technological advancements, um, you know, partnering with DOT, industry, you know, making sure that those investments are being made, but making sure that when those investments are made that they're not kind of stuck in the proverbial, um, you know, circular loop where, you know, they're not able to be deployed in real time. And, and it almost becomes too difficult to start employing these new uh, products. And they need to be able to get out there as quick as possible because at the end of the day, it's about safety. So, you know, in that collaboration with, you know, FERC, DOT, DOE, you know, to improve whether it's research testing and testing facilities, validations and so forth, or just making sure that we keep rules and regulations with the speed of industry and make sure they continue to be updated it is essential to, in, to ensure that we're going to have safe transport of, of all materials, whether it is through pipelines, whether it's through rail, or whether it's through marine transport. Well, I, I think I'll make a point. It's not just, you know, the pipelines that are flowing and the rail traffic that's moving or the ship cargoes that are sailing, but also the way information is traveling these days that, that tends to make a difference. The, the, there's a lot of upside for industry and for regulators to be able to take advantage of technology to have better information sooner. Uh, but at the same time, the advent of social media has also done a lot to enable opposition organizers to turn infrastructure that a lot of Americans never noticed into highly visible symbols. Uh, sometimes I joke that pipelines can connect, but they can divide. And don't even get me started on Nord Stream 2 uh, when it comes to that sort of thing. But while we are talking about the world at large, uh, Sean, it seems particularly timely in the middle of growing strategic competition with China and continuing threats from longstanding rival powers that we're hearing more and more about cybersecurity. You mentioned it at the outset. Uh, it's become a, a growing concern for energy infrastructure. Uh, how did the study address this? Well, you know, it was, and again, um, I really credit you know, our, our secretary and, and, and even the, the big interest between, you know, our current secretary, Royette, as well as undersecretary Menzies was, you know, the cybersecurity threat that's out there. And, you know, what we've recognized is a lot of companies are, are doing what they can, but not all companies are kind of keeping up to date. And so, you know, I, I think uh, API ultimately ended up updating a lot of their cybersecurity uh, recommendations, but you know, industry in collaboration with trade associations um, it should really adopt and maintain that up-to-date database and, and make sure that the performance standards remain up-to-date, as well as you know the increased Department of Homeland Security uh, DOE capabilities to kind of support independent and secure uh, cybersecurity assessments uh, and audits to really make sure that we're staying on top of this. Because at the end of the day, you're exactly 
right. You know, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, or whether it's, you know, somebody uh, with any ill intent, uh, if they're able to shut down a pipeline, that can cause some serious uh, issues for availability of, of electric generation or heat in the winter. But, you know, again, the Department of Energy working with industry, uh, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, it's really to establish that collaborative nature and that collaborative process to identify and, and prioritize research and development uh, um, initiatives, really kind of that sector-wide, um, I would say, protection against that nation state and advanced persistent uh, threat actors. Collaboration. I, and I think that's an essential part of the message here. Uh, and part of the, the program when the NPC does studies is to is to create a forum where there's a chance for different stakeholder groups, including NGOs and, and some of the tribes, for example, uh, the, the labor unions, uh, but industry and government to have, a, have an open room to, to have these discussions. And I think that that's an underappreciated part of the process. You know, the, the study is broad, and we could spend a lot of time on a lot of things, uh, but some things are, are more timely than others, maybe. Hopefully, cybersecurity risks won't be as timely as NEPA reform, uh, but it was just July 15th uh, that the, the president announced the finalization, the Council of Environmental Quality, finalizing uh, a modernization of, of NEPA rules, and it was uh, in June uh, that the EPA updated Section 401 of the Clean Water Act putting new limits on the ways states could use their cooperative federalist powers uh, towards the approval uh, in accordance with the CWA. Um, so, you know, the study was was approved by the council in December, and now here we are looking at the study through the lens of these two things. Uh, I, I thought maybe it'd be a good way to sort of take us out to, to the conclusion here. Give me your sense of how the, the study's recommendations look and, and how you see the way they they've applied to to some of those changes and for that matter maybe also the the COVID-19 era how that maybe changes the way you look at some of the study's recommendations uh we'll start with you Amy I think that um we should be very encouraged by what has been announced um around the NEPA reforms and, and the Clean Water Act some of those changes were almost word for word what we had in the study as far as our recommendations and um, anybody who's interested can go and read the what we call the permitting, siting, and social license to operate chapter. Uh, it details all of those recommendations. And so I think the study is very timely. Um, it will continue to be timely. And we're very encouraged by the, the progress that's being made in that area. As far as uh, COVID-19 and the impact on the relevance of the study, we're going to have to wait and see how that affects long-term supply and demand curves. Uh, I believe that you know it could push things out uh, some, but I don't believe that it's going to dramatically change the the key recommendations that we make and where we ultimately need to go as an industry and as a nation in this space. So I expect that the study will remain relevant going forward although we may have to put a pin in, in some of the recommendations while we get through this crisis. Sean, what about you? When you look back at the, the process and the recommendations and all that's transpired in these, these very brisk moving, but seems like they've lasted decades, months of 2020. I mean, by far, you know, in the study, one of the best diagrams was the NEPA process. And you look at it, and it's this map that just makes your head hurt. And I'm pretty sure, you know, even a brain surgeon couldn't figure out how to navigate it in, in, in an effective manner. And obviously, it was something that needed to be fixed. And, and, and really, 
what came out of that was the executive order that is about re, uh, reforming that. And, you know, these projects shouldn't take years. It shouldn't take thousands of pages of comments. And, you know, these projects need to move forward. And I think a lot of what we recommended ultimately ended up in that executive order and, and so forth. And, you know, that is a great first step. And, and still, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on NEPA and so forth because, you know, it continues to be an evolutionary process and t- needs some refinement. Now, in regards to COVID, uh, you know, I joked uh, and earlier, you know, we did, never really saw that one coming. But, you know, again, um, it has definitely put a dent on the oil and gas industry. It's, it's definitely taking up a lot of my time of, of doing analysis and, and where we're at and where do we think we're going. But, you know, once we get to the other side of COVID, you know, there will be some temporary uh, postponements of, of, of projects and so forth. But, you know, to get the economy jump-started again, I mean, if you go back to 2008, 2009, what really helped the economy, you know, move forward during that time? And it was the oil and gas industry. So, you know, I think uh, as prices rebound, as demand rebounds, you know, this is an opportunity to have the oil and gas industry really, uh, you know, be that uh, linchpin that really helps bring our economy back to that, you know, the the roaring ways that it was prior to the pandemic. Well, Thank you uh, for that comment. Thank you both for, for joining us uh, today. And congratulations, although it's, it's now, I suppose, many months in the rear view, uh, actively anyway, for both of you, uh, for completing such a, a successful major effort. Uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us on Energy 360. And that will conclude today's podcast. Bye now. Thanks to Kevin for leading that conversation with Amy and Sean. You can find a link to the NPC study on our website. And you can find more episodes of Energy 360 at CSIS.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.